All right, if you would, turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, looking at just three verses, verses 21 through 23. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father in heaven, God, first and foremost, I I pray that the horror of those words would not be heard by anyone here this morning. Lord God, I pray that as I come to this text to preach this message this morning, that you would go before me, that you would prevent my mouth from error, that you would guard all of our hearts from understanding things about this passage that are simply untrue, but understanding by your spirit what it is we are to know from this, the warnings that we are to take, but the assurance that we are to have. God, this is only possible by the power of your spirit. And so I pray that you would do it now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know why we preach sin pretty regularly at King's Church? Why you're exhorted over and over again to examine yourself? to see if the truth is in you, why you're called on to confess your sin to God, to repent of your sin, to believe in the gospel over and over and over again with some frequency because of verses just like these. Because the men who have been called by God, elected by you, and ordained to the task of caring for your spiritual well-being dread the thought of these words being said to any of you. It's a haunting idea that any of you would stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and hear these words. Jesus is going to say these words to someone. He's going to say them to many, he says here. He's going to say them to people who voted Republican. He's going to say them to people who openly condemned leftist ideology and Marxism. He's going to say them to people who always stood firmly on the fact that there are only two genders, to people who fought hard for good old-fashioned family values and conservative principles. The Lord Jesus will return, and when he does, he is going to say these words to people with a Christless conservatism. 
and worse, a Christless Christianity. Now, as we start out here this morning, I want us to consider something that I think is really important. I want you to consider what's Jesus' tone in these verses. Is he yelling? Is he in yell at mode? I had a New Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Kara, who, who when we were going through Paul's letters, Paul's in yell at mode a lot. And he would say, Paul's in yell at mode here. You know? Is Jesus in yell at mode here? He's in yell at mode sometimes. But how about right here? What did he sound like to the disciples when he said these words? We have to look, what's he been saying? What's he been talking to them about leading up to this? Lots of things, right? I've been going over a lot of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the Beatitudes, being salt and light, uh, how to view the law rightly, how to pray, how not to be like the Pharisees who had deceived themselves into believing they had a part with God when really they were apart from God. And he's really been hammering home a warning toward the end, hasn't he? He's been laying out options. He calls for a decision, narrow road or broad road. Right? He's taught about false teachers and talks about bearing good fruit and talking about the tree that bears bad fruit. What happens to the tree that bears the bad fruit? It's cut down, thrown in the fire. So can't you almost hear the warm urgency and the genuine concern in Jesus' words here that he has for his beloved disciples, that he's been teaching these things too? You know, he's saying, guys, don't just, don't just hear all of this that I've just taught you. Don't just accept it as true up here. It's not enough. You know, all of this that he's shared with them, you know, all of this that I've, I've shared with you, he says, don't, this isn't just something to take in. It's something that has to come out of you. Are you getting that? Are you feeling that? That's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants them to be warned. Christianity is not just a profession of what man believes about God. It is the life of God and the soul of man. That's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Christianity is not merely a profession about what a man believes about God. It is the life of God and the soul of man. There's a danger, Jesus warns us of here, and it's a danger of false peace. Does Jesus want you to have peace? You can answer. I see heads nodding. Does Jesus want us to have peace? Of course he does. But not a false peace. That's what he's warning of here, a false peace. There will be people who profess to believe in Jesus and say they followed him, who think they're right with God and they're going to heaven, and they're not. Jesus says they are strangers to him. And he makes it clear in these verses, doesn't he, that obedience is proof of true faith. And so those will be the main points of the sermon this morning. 
a warning against false peace, not having a false peace. And then obedience is proof of true faith. So point number one, warning against false peace. Many will have this false peace. That's the first thing. Not one or two here and there. Many. We need to be warned, lip service is not enough, right? Just saying you believe in Jesus isn't enough. In fact, not even truly believing in Jesus is enough. Do the demons truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is? James 2.19, the demons believe and shudder. Jesus warns us of this false peace, a false peace that will catch many people off guard in the last day. They'll make their appeal, Lord, Lord. But Jesus says they won't enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do the Father's will, will. And so here's where we've got to do some work, okay? We've got to do a little work here and use all of Scripture to in interpret Scripture because some people will complain at these verses and say, well, it can't mean that. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in his name will not be condemned but have eternal life. Acts 16.31 says, believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Sadly, there are many people who interpret those verses like this. Say certain things about Jesus and you'll be saved. Pray these words and you'll be saved. Problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when God saves a man, he changes a man. He transforms his, his will, his desires, his mind, his thinking. You can't meet Jesus, the real Jesus, and not end up being more like him. Say, well, that takes a lifetime. Yeah, it does. But you cannot meet the real Jesus and not end up being more like him. That's the Father's will for those he saves. Union with Christ. Not just a superficial belief in things about him. Right? Christianity is not just a mere profession of what we believe about God. It is the life of God working in the soul of man. And if that life of God is not there, it doesn't matter what someone says they believe about him. I like debating atheists. It's so easy, y'all. Because atheism is stupid. That, that's not me just saying that or trying to be ugly. God Almighty says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what atheists are, fools. Debating atheists is easy. All you have to do is keep pointing out how everything they say is so important in the world is utterly meaningless and insignificant and inconsequential if they're right about God and the universe. If we're all just cosmic accidents, as they claim, there is no good and evil. There's no right and wrong. There's no such thing as thoughts. 
There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as innovation and ideas and science. These are just chemical processes happening in our brains. And when anything evil happens, like another school shooting, there's nothing to complain about. This is just what meaningless matter does in these temperatures and under these conditions. I like debating atheists. It's easy. The Holy Spirit has to do the convicting and the convincing, but my job is easy. You know what's not easy? Trying to convince someone who believes they're a Christian that they're not one. That's hard. I don't like it as much. But you know what? I know a lot of them. Don't you? People who say, Lord, Lord, and wouldn't know Jesus if he sat on their head. They're convinced that because they said a prayer one time, or they grew up going to church, or they got baptized, they went to Sunday school every Sunday, or they, uh, you know, went and built huts in a third world country on a youth mission trip, that they're saved. And they're not. That's a false peace. That's who Jesus is talking about here. And there are many people like that. And I know you know some. People who Jesus will turn away on the last day because they put their faith in their faith and not in him. You see that difference? Faith in a profession instead of faith in a person. And you notice the reaction that the people have to, to, to Jesus in verse 22. They begin arguing with Jesus and pointing to their works as proof of their worthiness to enter the kingdom. They're, they're presenting their resumes and their credentials. Look, Jesus, there has to be some mistake here, right? Did, did I not prophesy in your name? It is possible, according to Jesus, for someone to preach Christ and not be saved. That'll happen. George Whitfield, one, one of my heroes, he saw a lot of conversions in the Great Awakening in the mid-1700s. He saw a lot of false conversions, you know. He saw a lot of this kind of thing, false, false conversions, just lip service professions. But he saw a lot of genuine conversions too. The Holy Spirit was really at work on this continent during that time, Okay. A lot of genuine conversions. And you know, he said his favorite was seeing ministers converted. That happened. Men who preached Christ week in and week out, who never really knew him and finally did. There are plenty of preachers out there today, popular ones, living the kind of false peace that Jesus warns about in these verses. That's real. They'll say, did we not cast out demons? Stacking up evidence to make their claim. Did we not cast out demons, they say? Y'all consider Judas was along for the ride when the disciples cast out demons. Didn't he believe in Jesus? Didn't he say, Lord, Lord, and participate in the mighty works of God? 
Didn't we do mighty works in your name? They go on. You can think about the Egyptian magicians. This came to mind in Exodus. Remember, Aaron throws down his staff and becomes a serpent. And then the, the magicians that aren't God's people, they're against God's people, right? What's the Pharaoh's magicians do? The same thing. Mighty works. Wonders. Maybe that's not the best example. It's lacking a little piece here, right? Didn't do, didn't do those things in Christ's name. So better example, Jesus' own warning in Matthew 24, 24. There will arise false Christs and prophets that will show great signs and wonders strong enough to fool the elect, if that were possible. He's warned about these kind of false prophets here in Matthew 7, as we've seen in recent weeks. And he's really hammering home this idea about having a false peace. Because it's that serious. I don't want us to leave here this morning without putting this with some names and some faces of people that we know, okay? And I want you to, I want you to understand this. It's a sobering reality. I can't make this all rainbows and sunshine, okay? It's not lollipops and rainbows. This is a difficult text. This is hard for us to, to take in. I get it. But you need to put some faces and some names with this warning because there are people you know wearing a Jesus jersey that will be in hell one day. There's always going to be whitewashed tombs. People who look clean on the outside. They say the right things. They go to the right church. But inside they're full of death and rot. Christianity is not just a mere profession of what we believe about God. It's the very life of God and the soul of man. Warning against false peace. Next point, obedience is proof of true faith. Who is it specifically Jesus says is turned away? Workers of lawlessness, verse 23. And what he says? Workers of lawlessness. And can I just stop here for a minute and say, you, King's Church, you have a really healthy and biblical view of law and grace. That's, that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's a rare thing. Praise God for that. You can hear obedience and not immediately think, oh, well, I've got to earn my salvation. Your mind doesn't go there. You have a healthy view of obedience. You understand its place in your life, that God expects that of you, but that it can't purchase your salvation for you. Praise God for that awareness. And so because of that, we can look at these verses together and we can see when Jesus says that it's those who do the will of the Father that enter heaven, and that it's the workers of lawlessness that are turned away, Jesus doesn't mean prove yourself. He means examine yourself. And if the evidence isn't there, you don't try to create some. You confess its absence. And your unworthiness before a holy God. 
who is your judge, and you beg for his mercy and forgiveness, that he might work his righteousness in you, that his righteousness would be credited to your account by grace and grace alone. So this isn't a works righteousness thing. Jesus didn't switch gears here. Jesus isn't talking about a works righteousness. In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? They're the ones who say, look, look at all I've done for you. They rely on their works. And woe to those who present themselves worthy to enter the kingdom on that day. So when we say obedience is proof of true faith. Don't focus on the works. Focus on the self-deception. That's what Jesus wants us to see. He's not suggesting you're going to have to present a scorecard to get into heaven. Is that what he's doing? You're not presenting a resume. Look at, look at my experience. I got all these credentials and all these check marks and... and uh, Gold stamps, no, unless your stamp is red in the blood of Jesus, you got nothing. Jesus is not telling us that we have to present a scorecard to get into heaven. That would be contrary to the very gospel itself. So what he is saying is be careful to not deceive yourself. Do not go on living with this false peace. You can think you've gotten so far and find out in the end you're wrong. You can believe all the right things up here. You can be entirely orthodox in your thinking about God. And as vital as orthodoxy is, you can be wrong about your standing before that God you claim to believe in and know those true things about. An intellectual assent to the truth is not the same as submission to the truth. You can believe Jesus' teaching and not trust him. You can believe in him and not be one with him. You can be a fan and not a true disciple. You see that? Your character and life will indicate what you are, a fan or a disciple. That's what Jesus is saying here. We see similar words in 1 John. You know, he says, whoever says, I know him. I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments as a liar. The truth is not in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. That's what people in the church were doing at the time John was writing that. Saying they believed and that they were Christians, but were living in sin. John says they're liars. Despite what they say, they're, they're wrong. It's, it's, it's not true. Because Christianity is not merely about the profession, our profession uh, about what we believe about God. It's the very life of God and the soul of man. Anyone is, who is persistent in sin demonstrates that they are not in Christ. So we have to examine ourselves. Is your name written in heaven? That's where you come to this morning. Isn't that the question? Is your name written in heaven? 
That's what we're left with after this warning from Jesus. You know, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you asking yourself, am I in danger of being one of these? How can I know? How can I know if my name is written in heaven? How can I know I won't be one of the many Jesus says these terrifying words to? Well, don't resist the urge, please, to look toward your works. Resist the urge to pull out and dust off that resume. Don't look toward what you say or even what you do, but who you are. Are you what Jesus says his people are? Poor in spirit, meek, merciful, humble. Do you long to see your Father's will done on earth as it is in heaven? And do you look for it to be done in your own life first? Is your character being shaped and transformed around the gospel message you claim to believe? That's what Jesus calls for here, self-examination. Not try harder, do better. Look and see. Look and see. Is it there or isn't it? And if it isn't, don't try to forge Jesus' signature on your own self-righteousness. You can deceive yourself. God will not be deceived. Examine ourselves. Beg him for mercy where we see our own lack. We should see our own lack. Christians should be the most humble people on the earth. Not puffed up with pride. We should know we're miserable failures and that hard, hard as we try, we always seem to miss it. That our hearts are black. That sanctification is sort of like the opposite of peeling an onion. Right? It's not like it gets smaller and smaller as you go on and peel off the layers. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The good news is, as you see you have a bigger view of your own sin, doesn't that cross get bigger? That's what it's all about. We beg him for mercy. We beg him that his righteousness would be ours and that it would show in our lives. So we examine ourselves. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to do. That's why he gives us this warning about obedience being proof of true faith. We examine ourselves. And self-examination is something we are generally hesitant to do, isn't it? I mean, does that come naturally to any one of us? <laughs> self-examination isn't a lot of fun. And sadly, sometimes today, people overemphasize grace. Is it possible to do that? Can we overemphasize grace? A lot of Christians and a lot of preachers do this. We shy away from self-examination because we're only ever supposed to look to Jesus. Not at ourselves, but to Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what. You don't ever look back here, you won't know how bad you need him. It's simply not scriptural. We are called all over the place in the Bible to examine ourselves, aren't we? Self-examination is included in the grace package. 
You know, you're not ignoring grace by examining yourself. That's what saved people do. That's what people who have received the grace of God as a free gift do. So these are not opposed to one another. So we don't overemphasize grace. We don't ignore how we're living and just presume on the Lord that we will be saved because we say we believe in him. We don't do that. That's how you get that false peace. That's the type of person, too, by the way, in the church that heals themselves a little too quickly when they know they've sinned. Have you seen this? Someone who spends little to no time at all grieving over their sin. They're just quick to brush it off and say, well, that's why we've got Jesus. Grace, grace. Now, as my dear friend and one of your elders, Foster Christie, has said on numerous occasions, grace has blood on it. Jesus had to die in the place of sinners and shed his own blood so that you could be forgiven of that sin. I mean, how how can you move past your sin and excuse it so easily and so quickly when you know how much it cost your Savior? Those with a cheap view of grace will undoubtedly be some of the many Jesus says he will turn away and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As I said in the beginning, consider Jesus' tone here. Remember, okay? Bring that back into the equation. Don't read him as though he's angry and being super stern. He earnestly desires. He earnestly does not want for us to deceive ourselves into thinking we have a part with him when we don't. And the proof that we have part in him, the proof of true and genuine faith, the proof that the life of God is working in us, well, it looks like obedience. Loving him looks like keeping his commandments. You know, we say every time this comes up, right? Jesus never said, I will love you if you keep my commandments. That's not what he said. But he does say, doesn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The obedience doesn't get Jesus. Jesus having us already begets obedience. And so that's how we can know. That's that's what we'll, we'll find if we examine ourselves and find that we are one with Christ. It's It's just what faith looks like. You can't meet Jesus and not end up looking more like him. Can't happen. You know why? Because God doesn't offer that kind of salvation. That's not the kind of salvation he offers. Wrapping up here. Jesus doesn't just want your profession. He doesn't just want your good works. He wants you. All of you. Because that's what he died for. If he died for you, he died for all of you, not part of you. Will you not give all of yourself to him then? Jesus wasn't some mere wonder worker 
too, okay? It wasn't just showed up on the scene performing miracles, knocking everyone's socks off, and they said, oh, what a guy. I'll go with him. No, he's a savior. A savior that doesn't just offer salvation, he actually saves. And the kind of saving he does is transformative. It changes lives. He died for our sin, delivers us from the power of sin, and transforms us morally from the inside out to be more like him. Those are the people who do the will of the Father in heaven. Those are the people who are blessed, who embody the Beatitudes that we looked at because Jesus himself is the embodiment of them and he holds nothing back from those he loves. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christianity is not just a profession of what man believes about God, it is the very life of God and the soul of man. Is it there? Elena, I'm going to pick on you because I love you. And I know what you said earlier. But I can, I can see your face. And as much as you know, your heart may be wandering. It seems like you know. You know he's got you. And if he does, that heart's going to turn around. Right? The worst thing you could do is go home and try to, you know, try to bust a Yui. Right? It's not going to work. You go to the cross over and over again. Praise God, the Spirit brings conviction that shows us our lack so that we keep running back to him over and over again. We don't get there by not taking a look at ourselves, do we? We don't get there when we think we've got it all together. When we think we're doing all right, like our scorecard's looking pretty sporty. We examine ourselves. It's not just about what we say we believe. It's about the Holy Spirit getting a hold of a person, changing their heart, changing their wants, their desires. And that begins to come out of us. That's how you can know. Is it there? Is the life of God in you? May you leave here today with the courage, y'all, to examine yourself, to ask that question. And may the Lord himself give you that peace and that assurance. Not a false peace that trusts in works or your own righteousness, but a true and lasting peace that comes from a place of humility and trust only in the work of Christ on your account and his righteousness imputed to you by grace. If he has given that to you, here's the good news. It can't be taken away. You know, it's not a, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Like Foster said at the beginning of the service, past, present, future. But don't presume, examine yourselves. It can never be taken away. He knows his own and his own know him. Examine yourself. Do you know him and are you known by him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, these are sobering words. 
But God, we praise you that you include words like this in the Bible. In your revelation to us, you call us to examine ourselves. And why? Because you love us. You love us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you, God, for loving us enough to tell us the truth, to give us warnings like we find here this morning. But God, help us to not be deceived, to not have a false peace, a false hope, a false confidence. Help us to not look in the wrong places. But God, help us also to have great assurance. Help us not to believe the lies of the devil that condemns and tears down and brings doubt. God, there's a balance that we cannot hold ourselves, and so we pray you hold us in that balance. Help us to view ourselves and you rightly. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in the place of sinners like us, undeserving, unworthy. Nothing in our hands are bring, only to your cross we cling. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for truth. Now let us live it out the rest of this day that you have set apart for our rest and your worship. Help us to carry it with us into our workplace and wherever we go with our families. Help us to see those wearing a Jesus jersey but that do not know you. Give us the boldness and courage we require to tell them with love and with humility. Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus that you might be saved. God, we ask this in all of our prayers in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.